America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. But could it be one of our last days as a great nation? Could this be one of our last days as God's green earth? We are on a path to nuclear war, so argues Jeremy Shapiro, who is a director of research at the European Council on Foreign Relations and a, a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings Institution, we're going to be speaking to him about a remarkable piece that he uh, wrote called This is How the World Ends. Uh, it's a, an extraordinarily alarming Piece and uh, one that I think deserves a great deal of attention. We're going to be speaking to Jeremy Shapiro a little bit later this hour. Meanwhile, uh, there has been a jury's recommendation. It is not the final decision about no death penalty for the Parkland shooter. The reaction of the families who are involved with mourning their murdered uh, loved ones the reaction is indignant, of course, and that, it seems to me, is entirely appropriate. It's extraordinary to me that uh, the idea of mercy is applied to this particular case. Uh, we will be getting to that momentarily. And also there is the ongoing uh, conduct of the hearings from the January 6th committee they are planning a surprise. Everyone was told that there would be a big surprise. The big surprise is not much of a surprise. They apparently are going to take a vote, and I think the outcome of the vote is well known beforehand. They're going to be taking a vote on whether or not to subpoena uh, Donald J. Trump. A and the question really is, why didn't they subpoena him before? Uh, I will tell you, having watched the hearings this morning, there is a great deal of fresh material. We'll try to cover it for you and try to give you a sample of it. The fresh material has to do with largely some of those Secret Service communications that they had been trying to get. Remember, at some point, there, some of the Secret Service communications had been erased and then they were able to recover them and they got them and the secret service communications are astonishing i mean i again they submitted them and read them in the committee hearings why is it so astonishing because the secret service at least and one assumes that they uh, shared this information with the Capitol police with the washington police with home uh, part of homeland security I hope they did, and if they didn't, the question is, why not? But they knew violence was coming, and they knew that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and other groups were planning to commit violence and were very well-armed. Uh, again, part of what it makes you realize, especially as you go back and you hear some of this testimony, some of it is being replayed from earlier in the hearings. We were extraordinarily lucky on January 6th. It could have been so much worse. And speaking of so much worse, a, a small city in the Bay Area is attacked for an outrage. 
uh, supposedly a racist, politically insensitive outrage. We will tell you what it is and why and where. Uh, there's also a resolution by a city council here in the state of Washington about national abortion policy. And, boy, you talk about uh, going beyond your lane and trying to get involved in a uh, decision that you really have no part of. Localities do not make abortion decisions. And, you I mean, people could say that there should be no abortion decisions by anyone except by doctors and patients. Uh, that's a position that some people take. But uh, the idea that a locality wants to take the uh, abortion policy issue into its own uh, uh, sphere of influence, outrageous. And we will cover that council meeting, which ended up with a vote of six to nothing. Uh, meanwhile, uh, there is just a general sense that with the election coming up, and with some of the key races being incredibly close, uh, there is a great deal of new information about um, the latest polling. The latest polling shows that some races that were very close appeared to be moving in a decisive direction, one of them in a Republican direction, one of them in a Democratic direction. The Republican direction is Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, who has been running a solid campaign. He's been raising a lot of money. He's been running a lot of ads. He's running against a, a very extreme progressive, someone on the left of the Democratic Party. He got the right opponent. And uh, it looks like he has taken command of the race and that he is likely to be reelected. He is a two-term Republican. He had originally said he would only serve two terms. He's now running for his third term, giving the Republican Party a tremendous boost in its desire to at least hold a 50-50 Senate, if not to gain one seat or two in order to uh, take over control of the U.S. Senate to replace uh, Chuck Schumer with um, Mitch McConnell. And yes, I think it would be Mitch McConnell. But meanwhile, there is a, another Senate race where the Republicans had been hoping to knock out a Democratic senator which is not going well, at least according to the polls. The uh, races in Georgia, where the direction seems to have been against Herschel Walker. Can you imagine why? Uh, I think it's kind of easy to imagine why. We will get to that as well on the Michael Medved Show. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the issue of the Parkland school shooter and uh, the news that just broke. This from the Wall Street Journal. Nicholas, Nicholas Cruz was spared the death penalty by a jury for the murders of 17 people at a Parkland, Florida high school in 2018. Instead, the jury recommended a sentence of life in prison without parole. The uh, Broward County Circuit Judge Elizabeth Scherer set a sentencing hearing for November 1st after prosecutors said all victims, uh, including those who survived the uh, shooting, have a right to express what they think the appropriate sentence should be. 
Uh, Cruz, 24, pleaded guilty last year to the murders of 17 people and the attempted murders of 17 others at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. The trial focused solely on whether Cruz should be put to death or spend the rest of his life in prison. The three-month trial included graphic and wrenching accounts of the massacre. Judge Scherer read the jury's findings in the courtroom while family members of the victims looked on, some with their heads bowed and eyes closed, others shaking their heads. Cruz, dressed in a blue and gray sweater and wearing glasses, watched quietly. Uh, some of the actual reaction of the, um, of the victims' families are, are even difficult to hear. And the, the one thing that strikes me and that I wish someone would answer, if one believes that, uh, that Nicholas Cruz has not earned the death penalty, the maximum penalty that our system allows, who would? Uh, what would you have to do to deserve the death penalty if this individual does not deserve it? I, uh, I quoted Lincoln yesterday when we were talking about this. Lincoln said, if slavery isn't wrong, then nothing is wrong. If Nicholas Cruz doesn't deserve the death penalty, then nobody does. And I, I don't believe that to be true. Uh, we will get to that to the very latest on the hearings on January 6th upon the uh, apparent desire to subpoena President Trump. The timing is very odd. We will get to that and much more coming up on the Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, talking about the jury recommendation, it apparently is not a final decision. The um, the jurors, um, uh, when uh, Judge Scherer, who was uh, presiding, it's uh, Broward County Circuit Judge Elizabeth Scherer, she's presiding over this proceeding. Uh, she read the jury's findings in the courtroom while family members of the victims looked on, some with their heads bowed and eyes closed, others shaking their heads. Uh, Cruz, dressed in a blue and gray sweater and wearing glasses, watched quietly. To the best of my knowledge, none of the family members had been uh, pushing for the life imprisonment uh, alternative. They all had assumed, I think rightly, that the just verdict in this particular case was certainly the death penalty. The uh, jurors unanimously found that prosecutors had proven beyond a reasonable doubt that aggravating factors which must be established to make a defendant eligible for the death penalty under Florida law warranted a possible death sentence. But one or more individual jurors found that one or more mitigating circumstances which would support a sentence of life in prison uh, was established by the greater weight of the evidence. In other words, the uh, mitigating factors, the aggravating factors for the killing, which is the fact that it was planned in advance, that it was in incredibly cruel, 
that it was vicious and 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 bloody beyond your a normal even first degree murder conviction is this 17 people who were killed whose lives were snuffed out by Nicholas Cruz and the mitigating factors have to do with apparently he suffered from a fetal alcohol syndrome he was an adopted child his mother had uh, been a heavy drinker and drug user she is no longer alive and then the other mitigating factor was he had been very hard hit by the death of his adoptive mother but uh, the the idea that he does not deserve the death penalty if he doesn't who does 1-800-955-1776 uh, jurors did not unanimously agree that the aggravating factors outweighed the mitigating circumstances, meaning they didn't concur on giving Cruz the death penalty. Under Florida law, a jury must reach a unanimous verdict to sentence a defendant to death. The jury deliberated about seven hours uh, yesterday, and they spent the night, last night, sequestered in a hotel before returning to the Broward County Circuit Court on Thursday morning. Uh, there's a uh, mother of a, a child, Alyssa Al Haddaf, was a, a child, a student at Parkland at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and uh, Alyssa Al Haddaf was killed in the shooting. Her mother, Lori Al Haddaf, said, I am so beyond disappointed and frustrated with this outcome. Uh, she and her husband, Ilan Al Haddaf, uh, spoke to the press after the jury's recommendation became known, was announced. This is a clip 15. I'm disgusted with our legal system. I'm disgusted with those jurors. I'm disgusted with the system. That you can allow 17 dead and 17 others shot and wounded and not give the death penalty. What do we have the death penalty for? What is the purpose of it? You set a precedent today. You set a precedent for the next mass killing, and nothing happens to you. You'll get life in jail. I'm sorry. That is not okay. As a country, we need to stand up and say that's not okay. I pray that that animal suffers every day of his life in jail, and he should have a short life. Uh, that's uh, Ilan Al-Hadaf, the father of Alyssa Al-Hadaf, was one of the victims. Uh, Fred Gutenberg, who was uh, a father of a Parkland victim, uh, Jamie Gutenberg, uh, he's been very active and outspoken on uh, various gun regulation issues. After the jury recommended life in prison for the shooter, uh, he had uh, this to say. This is clip 14. The first thing I do moving forward is I go visit my daughter at the cemetery because he killed her. And that's what I have to do. The next thing I do moving forward is everything I can to prevent the next one of these from happening. The next thing I do moving forward is everything I possibly can to remind people how important the next election is and voting because we do have the ability to do things in this country to reduce gun violence through our vote, and we need to do them.
So I'm going to continue doing what I do. And I'm going to go to the cemetery, and I'm going to tell my daughter what happened today, and I'm going to tell her I love her and always will. Okay. Uh, the uh, during the last stages of the trial, and we covered this yesterday to to some extent. The uh, prosecutor, whose name is Michael Satz, uh, provided a minute by minute account of how Cruz entered the school and moved through the school, shooting victims and sometimes returning to fire at them again. The prosecution showed jurors gruesome images of the carnage and called to the stand survivors of the shooting who gave gripping accounts of the attack. Mr. Satz argued that the prosecution had established beyond any reasonable doubt seven aggregating factors that he said justified the death penalty under Florida law. They included that the murders were especially heinous, that they were atrocious or cruel, that they were cold counted to many people. Uh, Melissa McNeil, a public defender representing Cruz, presented evidence of what she said were mitigating circumstances that supported a sentence of life in prison, arguing that Cruz suffered from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder stemming from his biological mother's drinking, that he grew up in a chaotic household, and that he suffered a severe blow from the death of his adoptive mother. Uh, again, it, it, uh, it is not a uh, wonderful day for clarity in our system. Apparently, between now and November 1st, when uh, the judge is going to have a final sentencing hearing, there will be a chance for family members of the victims uh, and, and others to uh, weigh in on uh, their question about the final sentence for this killer. Uh, there was also, obviously, a... Uh, uh, more yesterday on Alex Jones. We had understated because we were getting the news as it was breaking. And I said, oh, it looks like it's going to be 20s of millions of dollars, almost a billion dollars that he was asked to pay for defamation. We will get to that working of our justice system. But then the question of the system for avoiding war. Are we on the road to nuclear war? Coming up on the Med. On the Michael Medved show, uh, we have an important election coming up. And yes, I do believe it is important. But <laughs> then we also have the possibility of a nuclear exchange, a thermonuclear war coming up, which actually, when you talk about its impact on you and me and the universe, uh, could be even greater than who carries, oh, I don't know, the third congressional district in Nebraska. Uh, which is contested, by the way, this time. Uh, Jeremy Shapiro is the Director of Research at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He served in the United States State Department from 2009 to 2013. He has written uh, a chilling and necessary piece, it seems to me, uh, called uh, We Are On A Path To Nuclear War. Uh, Mr. Shapiro, thank you for making time for us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, in terms of the 
the scenario that you lay out, uh, I know that Rich Lowry over at National Review says, uh, okay, it's not inevitable, but it's not crazy. Uh, do you think that this path, which begins with a Russian decision, uh, some geniuses within the Russian leadership will put forward the idea that they can reverse the momentum and demonstrate their greater willingness to accept Armageddon by a nuclear demonstration. Do you think that is likely? Uh, I think that it's the path that we're on. Um, it's the it's the way in which things are going. Uh, there's a lot of things that could change it. Uh, there's a lot of ways to get off of that path. But I think unless uh, one or both sides decides that they really are going to take active and difficult measures to get off the path, uh, I think it's where we'll end up eventually. And uh, when you mean a, a nuclear demonstration, this is not the kind of thing that they were talking about before Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where you just show uh, a, a bomb test somewhere. You're talking about a demonstration of destructive power aiming at uh, either some infrastructure targets in Ukraine or troop concentrations. What would they do as a nuclear demonstration? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, there was an interesting debate about that before Hiroshima uh, within the U.S. government, and they thought about, well, maybe we could drop this, we could tell them that we're going to do this and then drop this thing in an unpopulated area, and they would see the demonstration of its power uh, and give up. Um, and then they realized that um, they weren't sure that the bombs were going to work. Uh, and so if they did that, uh, the demonstration wouldn't uh, have much effect actually would embarrass them and reduce their ability to course the Japanese and so the Russians are in a similar place actually uh, they're not really sure their bombs will work um, and so uh, they're going to have to demonstrate by creating a very horrible effect uh, I think you know just in sort of my guess it would be against a, either some sort of Ukrainian troop concentration if they can find one or against uh, a, a part of a Ukrainian city uh, causing a lot of damage and a lot of casualties. And what they would be demonstrating there is not precisely the destructive power of the bomb, but more, but more their willingness to use it, their willingness to cross the nuclear taboo. And what they'd be trying to say more to the West than to the Ukrainians is, look, we're just crazy enough to do this, so why don't you back off? So what is the appropriate... Uh, response. I mean, I've, I've been reading a lot about deterrence. Walter Russell Mead has a powerful column about the need for credible deterrence here. Uh, what What does the United States do to prevent the Russians from taking a step like that? Well, I think it's important to understand why they would do it. Um, from my mind, it's not because they think it's it's a great idea. It's not because they think it's going to necessarily win them the war. It's because they feel as if they are in danger of losing the war. And losing the war would be a direct threat to their regime and even to the lives of the leaders of that regime, including uh, Vladimir Putin. And so this would be, on a certain level, an act of desperation, what, what political scientists often call gambling for resurrection. Uh, which in which they would be essentially trying a, a very risky move, something they understand is very risky, but because they, they have to, because they have very unpalatable alternatives. 
So, of course, the easiest thing to do to prevent them from doing that, we can talk about all the, all the threats we want, but it would be not to put them into that position where they're choosing between such very unpalatable alternatives and to be thinking about the problem of what you might call catastrophic success, where you are so effective against the Russians that, uh, that they fear for their very, the very existence of their regime and the territorial integrity of their state. So what, are you talking about peace negotiations now with the Ukrainians um, and, and basically some kind of uh, compromise where the Russians would be able to keep some of the territory that they have seized, uh, like Crimea, and uh, the Ukrainians might not allow that? Or are we talking about uh, basically assuring the Russian government that the uh, that the West will take no steps to uh, kill or unseat Putin and his cronies? Um, I guess I am certainly talking about some sort of negotiations. I can't prejudge what the results of those negotiations would be, but I think that we should be looking for compromise and we should be looking for ways in which we can, uh, in which we can uh, come up with a, a way forward that doesn't involve this type of outcome, which is very bad for uh, both sides. I'm not impressed by the arguments that say the Ukrainians won't allow it. I've described the scenario which affects every single American, um, potentially, uh, in which American lives are at stake and the lives of a lot of other people in a lot of other countries. Um, it's not enough for me to have my leaders tell me that they can't do that, they can't take what they think might be steps that are in the best interests of the United States because the Ukrainians won't let them. That is a, a violation of American sovereignty and, a, and an abdication of our leaders' responsibility to protect U.S. national interests. Um, I think that there is a way to do this which will um, be acceptable to uh, the Ukrainians. I think they, like like us, like the Russians, will have to make some very hard and difficult choices, and I won't prejudge what those are. Um, but I think that in the interests of, um, of uh, avoiding this type of outcome, we have to think about those compromises. Uh, okay. Uh, I hope we can discuss uh, some of those compromises in, in greater detail. Uh, if the Russians do proceed to uh, some kind of uh, demonstration of power and some kind of a, a nuclear attack on a, uh, say, a troop concentrations of Ukrainians or an attack on a Ukrainian city, might even be Kiev, uh, is it then too late to get off this uh, uh, on-ramp to uh, a a nuclear war with uh, targets in Europe, maybe North America, and certainly in Russia itself. We will continue uh, that conversation. It's a grim conversation, but a very necessary one. It's a, a persuasive and substantive piece uh, by Jeremy Shapiro that uh, we're talking about. It's a piece that was published on War on the Rocks, and uh, it's called... Uh, basically, uh, this is, uh, we are on the road to nuclear war, on a path 
to nuclear war. So what other paths uh, diverge in a snowy wood <laughs> to get us somewhere else? We will get to that and more with Jeremy Shapiro coming up on The Medved Show. a path to nuclear war that is the important and provocative question posed by Jeremy Shapiro who is a director of research at the European Council on Foreign Relations and he's a senior fellow at Brookings Institution he served in the US State Department from 2009 to 2013 uh, you speculate in uh, your piece that if uh, a group of crazies, as you put it, some genius within the Russian leadership will put forward the idea that they can reverse the momentum by some kind of nuclear demonstration. Then uh, you talk about what the United States or the West would do in response. And you say the U.S. government has certainly considered this contingency, which is why both National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Secretary of State Antony Blinken were recently dispatched to warn the Russians that they would suffer horrific and catastrophic consequences if they used nuclear weapons in Ukraine. What does that mean? Well, nobody knows what that means. I suppose probably including the American government, um, because... Uh, the problem that the U.S. government would have in that circumstance is that they would need to respond. They would be uh, they would be uh, facing a the the someone would have crossed the Russians would have crossed the nuclear taboo. They would have crossed the nuclear line, uh, and the the idea that you could just let that go unpunished, let that go unresponded to, would be anathema in American uh, political thought, and it would be a disaster for the administration if they did. So they would have to have a response. They would be looking for a response that would be uh, sufficient to the crime, and of course it would be a massive crime, but also not escalatory. In other words, it wouldn't, it wouldn't push the Russians yet further toward a strategic nuclear war in which they would attack uh, U.S. or NATO targets. Uh, and that's a very difficult tightrope to walk. Um, my guess in the scenario was that they would look to send a message, a sort of calibrated message to the Russians that they were trying to punish what they had done, not trying to escalate the war, and that that would involve an attack on either um, Russian military formations within Ukraine or the specific military base or military asset that had, that had carried out the nuclear attack, even if that was a base within Russia. And with that sort of somewhat discreet but nonetheless punishing attack, they would be attempting to send a calibrated message to the Russians. And then what happens? Well, then you're, you know, yet one more uh, rung up the escalation ladder. And then the question is, do the Russians actually receive that calibrated message? The problem is, is that the Russians are... Uh, deeply of the belief that the United States is trying to overthrow their regime, in part because 
President Biden said that a few months ago, um, but also because there's a sort of long history of them thinking that that was the U.S. effort. Uh, and so they would. Uh, it's very unlikely that they would see that escalation as um, as merely an effort to punish them and to and to reduce the temperature. And they would probably respond uh, by putting their nuclear forces on alert and by attacking uh, U.S. or NATO assets uh, outside of Ukraine, uh, in perhaps Poland or, Bal- or the Baltic states. Um, what about uh, what about the possibility? Doesn't doesn't the United States still have major military bases in Germany? Yes, yeah, and wouldn't that be uh, given the fact that uh, the Russians have uh, vivid memories of their incalculable twenty million uh, dead losses in World War II, uh, hitting uh, U.S. Um, military facilities in Germany? is kind of a twofer because you then attack America at the same time that you're actually attacking the soil of uh, a nation that is still uh, viewed with uh, great resentment uh, by by many people in Russia. Is that not a possible worry I, that I we would have? I suppose it's a possibility. I think that there are, um, there are other targets. Uh, there's a lot of U.S. military forces right now in Poland and the Baltic states, and those are the places that are being used somewhat more prominently than Germany to uh, transfer uh, weapons, other supplies into Ukraine. Um, so I guess I would expect it there, but honestly, I don't know. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of different scenarios, and I'm certainly not inside the mind of the Russians. Um, my <laughs> my central you. point, yeah, <laughs> that's a good thing. Um, my central point is I think that they would feel that it was necessary to respond, and they would feel that it was necessary to sort of send a message to the United States and to NATO uh, that uh, they can't be intimidated in this way, uh, and that they're not going to give up in Ukraine um, just because the U.S. has taken direct has made a direct attack against them. Uh, and so that's you know that's sort of part of the type of escalatory spiral that we're seeing. And the key point in this is that these these sort of these sort of uh, steps seem crazy at the moment. And from here, they are crazy. But what happens in an escalation ladder is that every previous escalation makes the next one more possible and more conceivable and, in, in some sense, more necessary from the standpoint of the country that is escalating. And that's really what I'm worried about, that we're on this sort of escalatory ladder. If you look back just over the last seven or eight months, you see that we've already, both sides, the Russians and uh, the the Ukrainians and the West, have escalated more than they would have thought was possible six or seven months ago. The the Russians are bombing civilian targets that they said they wouldn't do. The U.S. is supplying weapons of a type that they said they probably wouldn't supply. Um, So uh, things have already escalated, and I think uh, it's important to recognize the escalatory dynamics, to understand where they could lead, even though, of course, we can't predict the future, and to worry about it and to think about what that means for the types of compromises that it might be worthwhile making today while we still have the opportunity. And well, what would be a potential basis for some kind of uh, truce or armistice or uh settlement on the matter of uh, Ukrainian sovereignty? 
I don't think that there's any capacity to compromise, um, you know, in a sort of juridical way on Ukrainian sovereignty. Um, no one is ever going to give up on the idea that these, uh, no one on the Western side is ever going to give up on the idea that the, the territories that the Russians have seized are, are Ukrainian and no one should. Um, but the idea that you could have some sort of uh, uh, armistice or ceasefire while you negotiate the future of those territories while without giving up any claim to them is uh, something that has some precedent in places like uh, Korea uh, and elsewhere where we, you know, we, for, we have never recognized, uh, we've never even ended the Korean War, actually. It's been in, the, it's been in armistice since 1953. But I would argue that the danger of escalation has been reduced rather greatly by that armistice. Uh, in terms of uh, there also we had a situation in the Balkans where we uh, we helped to stop a great deal of killing that was going on in the very center of Europe. Uh, the uh, uh, do you believe that President Biden is giving? Uh, the right level of attention to what is going on right now with uh, this confrontation, which is a possible trigger for a nuclear war? Yes, I think he's giving uh, sufficient attention. Um, he's, uh, you know, obviously he's been very concentrated on this. He's spoken on it personally many times. Um, uh, and it's I, I I know from uh, talking to members of his administration that it is the, uh, their highest priority. Uh, I think that the problem that they're having is that they're struggling with exactly the issues that we've just been talking about, about trying to find a compromise with the Russians that doesn't compromise uh, critical U.S. positions that can be agreed by the Ukrainians and can be agreed by uh, all of the NATO allies and can not redound against them in U.S. domestic politics and make them and have them be told by the Republicans that they're that they're weak or appeasers or something like that. And that, so I think that they're under a lot of conflicting pressures uh, and they haven't found a solution. Uh, and I'm very sympathetic to that. I don't have any great solutions. Um, but I do worry very much about uh, where this is going, and so I think it's time to take some uh, political risks. Look, the um, military risks, the risks of uh, violence on a, a huge and um, perhaps even unprecedented scale is there. It is worth reading about. Uh, we are on a path to nuclear war. That is the piece by Jeremy Shapiro. It's posted at our website in uh, This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.